breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Always an honor to be with you, and it is great to be back. As you probably could tell, I was off for a week, took a long must say a long overdue vacation with the family and we thought we had a novel idea but as we started to google over the past few weeks and months we realized that it was not novel as in the COVID-19 environment many other families are looking at camping glamping or everyone call it renting RVs and taking some time away just to get away and that's what we did rented an RV we live in Phoenix Arizona took a drive up to Yellowstone in Montana, Wyoming, and the area there, one of the largest, most beautiful parks in the world. And I have to tell you, it was not only time to see God's country, but time to spend with family, time to reflect, get away from electronics, get away from the screens, and listen to the quiets of nature, roast some marshmallows, try to figure out how to operate an RV. <laughs> it was it was quite quite the experience, but memories that we will always have. It was a great time. So thanks for giving me that time off. Hopefully you're energized, ready to re-engage on the topics of the day. You know, as our oldest gets ready for college or whatever form that takes, we not only pray that he does well and enjoys and grows and matures into that but as our first one goes off to college yes all of the all of the stressors of a COVID-19 environment will he be paying for a tuition that's basically at home or will they engage them in campus life and just begin to move on and a lot of these questions are unanswered but still as as many of our children across the country are getting ready for college Yes, the question, what's the environment? Will they, how will they respond to the tests and the challenges of academia? Are the universities trustworthy? Can they be trusted with the future minds, the future leaders of America to give them a balanced vision, a balanced approach to education, or is it all skewed in one environment? I'm going to talk a little about that skew today, not just not really about universities, but about cancel culture, a term that I really don't like. It's evolved, and I'll tell you why I don't like it in a minute. But what is this environment where groupthink, wrongthink, however you want to call it, has become the norm? And the departure of Barry Weiss from the New York Times this week sparked another opportunity for a national conversation over are we really balanced anymore do we have the ability to give our population a balanced narrative so that they can make a decision or are we because of the twitterati and others making decisions for them and whoever the we is i'm not really a part of mainstream media as you probably can tell as you listen to this podcast and as you see where we publish our works but i'm proud of that fact the so-called legacy media has missed 
not only the last election, but has missed a number of the pulses that exist across America because they're part of the elite, the elitists who believe that they define what is right and what is wrong, and the rest are simply sheep that should follow them because they're either uneducated or they're however however they want to paint the rest of America. And in fact, they're far more educated in real life and common sense than the academic elites that often may know a few texts that they've read but when it comes to real life and common sense and rationality they missed the boat a long time ago so we had a great vacation we had a great time as a family I'd recommend it so that you can keep your focus on what first things are first in your life in your family in your health and don't let the time flow through your hands like water hold on to it hold on to it tight and dearly for the legacy that we leave, as much as it can be our words and paper, as much as it can be our voice and tape, there is no stronger legacy than our children and our family and our neighbors and our contacts that we leave. So we had a great time, great picks, great conversation, which we'll remember for a while, and now it's back to the grind as we see COVID-19 cases spiking here in Arizona across the country. Oh, we're realizing now that it's not just the red states. It's all over the country. This is what happened when people start mingling again, that the virus is there and it will spread. The death rates are dropping as the infection rates increase. The... The ICUs are filling, but not at a higher rate per infection, but simply by sheer numbers. The hospital rates are actually beginning to plateau in many states. So yes, it will be a tense summer. Yes, we're still trying to figure out what's happening with sports, as most of them will not have fans. But that is a result of rational decisions. But the irrational, which I did not agree with, was the shutting down of the economy for weeks and weeks, some states, months. It didn't make sense. Because the virus is going to spread at some point. And why add to the devastation of the horrific illnesses and deaths that happened from COVID-19 and add other deaths to other pandemics that happen as a result of economic devastation, unemployment, and other health care issues deferred? But we've talked about that before. I want to focus today this whole concept of cancel culture. Barry Weiss has been at the New York Times now for just three years. When she started there, she was heralded as sort of that that centrist voice. Interesting, actually, some of the writing this week about her called her a conservative. It shows you that anyone who doesn't or who bucks the 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 uh, operational leadership at papers of record like the New York Times and others will be called a conservative. (laughs) When in fact she's not a conservative. She's simply somebody who thought for herself, who believes in a rational, balanced approach and realized that 
you know, I'll let her, let me let her words speak for herself. She wrote a letter in departure and resignation this week, and she said, it is sad, it is with sadness that I write to tell you I'm resigning from the New York Times. I joined the paper with gratitude and optimism three years ago. I was hired with the goal of bringing in voices that would not otherwise appear in your pages. First-time writers, centrists, conservatives, and others who would not naturally think of the Times as their home. The reason for this effort was clear. The paper's failure to anticipate the outcome of the 16 election meant that it didn't have a firm grasp of its country. It covers. Dean Beckett and others have admitted as much. I was honored to be part of that effort led by James Bennett. And by the way, Bennett now has resigned. It's probably part of the reason that Barry Weiss has resigned. Her mentor, her um, recruiter, left and she no longer had some of that comfort. And she explains it why. Among those she helped to bring to the pages, the Venezuelan dissident Artiega, the, the Iranian chess champion Dorsa Darakshani, Hong Kong Christian Democrat Derek Lam, Ayan Hirsi Ali, Mazih Alinejad, Zaina Arafat, Elna Bakr, Rachel Den Hollander, Maddie Friedman, Nick, Nick Gillespie, Heather Hying, Randall Kennedy, Julius Krein, Monica Lewinsky, Ali Sufan, Chloe Valdery. Wesley Yang, and many others. And some of those names you guys might know, you all may know because I've quoted them and read them. They are vibrant voices of reform, vibrant voices of freedom and liberty, and she brought them to the New York Times pages. She talks about lessons of understanding Americans, listening to them, resisting tribalism, free exchange of ideas to a democratic society. She said, instead, a new consensus has emerged in the press. That new consensus especially at this paper, that truth isn't a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job is to inform everyone else. Truth isn't a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job is to inform everyone else. Wow. That's what I was talking about when you think about universities and else newspapers and media and legacy media. And she said, Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become the ultimate editor. As the ethics and mores of that platform have become those of the paper, the paper itself has increasingly become a kind of performance space. Stories are chosen and told in a way to satisfy the narrowest of audiences, rather than to allow a curious public to read about the world and then draw their own conclusions. She notes very aptly, that she was taught that journalists were charged with writing the first rough draft of history. Now history itself is one of mere ephemeral thing molded to fit the needs of a predetermined narrative. Wow, what a beautiful way to describe propaganda. Propaganda. And that's what New York Times has become, and that's why she left. She said, my own forays into wrong think have made me the subject of constant bullying by colleagues who disagree with my views. They've called me a Nazi and a racist. I've learned to brush off comments about how I'm writing about the Jews again. 
and obviously Barry Weiss is Jewish. Several colleagues perceived to be friendly with me were badgered by co-workers. So even her supporters who agreed with her at the paper were also badgered. I can't tell you how much that resonates with our work here that you hear me talk about on Reform This. I wrote a piece in 2014 for the Arizona Republic called Why I Was Bullied for Taking on Hamas at My Mosque and how the group think pushback. Now, I tried to write a similar article a few months ago, and it could not be published. The paper refused to publish it because it was too... uh, They were concerned about legalities and slander and other things about the imam who had multiple, multiple affidavits written by women that had detailed from a legal project about their abuse. And he was fired and removed from the mosque. They said he resigned, but he was removed and went to another mosque. And I thought the story was very apropos about how the story was hushed. And a lot of these affidavits and reports were published and printed at a nonprofit women's advocacy organizations group. And I'm just saying, I've talked about that story before. There'll probably be more to come on that. But it's the same issue is that a protected class evolves, that regardless of the wrong that they may say or do, and the value of bringing about reform within that group, it is hushed because of bullying. Sometimes the term bullying implies weakness, that, oh, if you say I'm bullied, that somehow you are weak or you have a complex of not wanting to take on. But the point of bullying is that a group causes a cacophony of sound that drowns out minority voices, drowns out diverse voices. That's what bullying is. Bullying is intimidation, threats that you won't be able to get a job, that you will be that you will be slandered, that you will be libeled if you do anything to expose your own opinions, which you view as the truth. They may argue that it's not the truth, that their truth is the truth, but the balance of that conversation is what we're losing. And Barry epitomizes that. And what happened to her at the New York Times epitomizes that. Her courage is what more need to have. She said that badgering can be called unlawful discrimination, hostile work environment, constructive discharge, Yes, that's often what it is, where you make the environment so untenable that the employee has to leave. She knows it's wrong. She said she's not a legal expert, but she knows it's wrong. She said, part of me wishes I could say that my experience was unique, but the truth is that the intellectual curiosity, let alone the risk-taking, is now a liability at the New York Times. And so self-censorship has become the norm. As they publish their 4,000th op-ed arguing that Donald Trump is a unique danger to the country and the world, but other things get published without any scrutiny. Extreme selectivity. If the person's ideology is in keeping with the new orthodoxy, Barry says, they and their work remain unscrutinized. Everyone else, however, lives in fear of the digital thunderdome. Online venom is excused so long as it's directed at the proper targets. 
And she makes another point here that I think is a call, is a call the fact that we are at critical crossroads. And that's one of the things, you know, I reflected on our travel with our family in a moment of reflection. I do believe, ladies and gentlemen, that our country is at a critical crossroads. That this year will be looked upon not only about the virus and the riots and and the demonstrations and and the and the rallies and the discussion of a deeper understanding of what is bigotry against any community, let alone that which we are having a conversation on about the bigotry against the African American community. But what is true demonstrations of speech versus riots and anarchy? And how do you respect police by also being critical? How do you support them with better funding without defunding and making crime rates go up and actually then creating more anarchy? These are all balanced conversations and arguments that our country is not having. And I think this year will be looked upon. This year will be looked upon as one in which we were at a crossroads. She said op-eds that would have been published two years ago would now get an editor or writer in serious trouble if not fired. That is a shift that we need to realize. If a piece is perceived as likely to inspire backlash internally on social media, the editor or the writer avoids pitching it. Avoids pitching it. As I've told you before, I've submitted probably 15, 20 editorials over the last 15, 20 years since 9-11 to the New York Times with not one published. While I've had three or four published the Wall Street Journal, National Review, Chicago Tribune, Dallas Morning News, Arizona Republic. It's not like I haven't been published in legacy media, but yet the New York Times never did. Maybe it's bad luck. They get hundreds, they get thousands. Or maybe it's part of the same symptoms of what Barry describes. She says how if an editor feels strongly enough to suggest it, she's quickly steered to safer ground. Safer ground. And if everyone and then, and if every now and then, she succeeds in getting a piece published that does not explicitly promote progressive causes, it happens only after every line is carefully massaged, negotiated, and caveated. It took the paper two days and two jobs to say that the Tom Cotton op-ed fell short of our standards. That was the slay. And this is me talking. That was the slash and burn of the slaying of the fact that they saw that with the Tom Cotton op-ed, their readers are going to be opened to the possible need for some federal enforcement of laws when anarchy ruled in various towns. I didn't agree with all of what Tom wrote, what Senator Cotton wrote, but he certainly gave a, as a veteran, as a war veteran and as an American, Republican U.S. Senator gave an argument that I certainly appreciated and respected greatly. And yet she notes that that was probably one of the tipping points. We attached an editor's note on a travel story about Jaffa certainly after it was published because it failed to touch on the important aspects of its makeup and history. But there is still none on the Cheryl Strade's fawning interview with the writer Alice Walker, a proud anti-Semite who believes in lizard Illuminati. She talks about how the paper of record is now living in a distant galaxy. The Soviet space program is lauded for its diversity, 
The doxing of teenagers is the name of justice is condoned. And the worst caste systems in human history includes the United States alongside Nazi Germany. That's what the New York Times is writing. And she notes, actually, that many of the reporters and writers don't hold these opinions at the New York Times, and yet that is becoming what they're presenting because they're cowed into doing so. And maybe, she notes, it's because of the jobs. They don't want to lose their job and add to the unemployed people in this country. They need their jobs as the industry contracts. It's hard to be courageous and unemployed. Those are my words. But yet she notes it's the new McCarthyism that has taken root at the paper of record. And she notes, and again, this is again the critical juncture that we're coming to. All this bodes ill, especially for independent-minded young writers and editors paying close attention. This is about the next generation, right? Close attention to what they'll have to do to advance in their careers. Rule one, speak your mind at your own peril. Rule two, never risk commissioning a story that goes against the narrative. Rule three, never believe an editor or publisher who urges you to go against the grain. Eventually, the publisher will cave to the mob. The editor will get fired or reassigned, and you'll be hung out to dry. She then ends with Adolph Oaks' description in 1896 statement to the paper to make the columns of the New York Times a forum for the consideration of all questions of public importance and to that end to invite intelligent discussion from all shades of opinion. Always the best ideas win out, she says. But ideas cannot win on their own. They need a voice. They need a hearing. They must be backed by people willing to live by them. Thank you, Barry Weiss, for that courageous letter. Yes, it's been discussed quite a bit. But I wanted to, from my own perspective as an anti-Islamist, as a, as a Muslim who loves my faith and has been trying to buck the, the, the uh, bullying of the Islamist establishment that controls our mosques, that controls our organizations. I see the Islamist organization this week, Engage, talking about promoting Joe Biden and their pack and and how they're pushing for the only candidate that will voice Muslim concerns, etc. And I think to myself, this is a Muslim Brotherhood party. M. Gage might as well be the Muslim Brotherhood apparatus party lobbying for organizations, lobbying for candidates that share their platform, that do their work in the left green, in the red green axis. And when you take them on, you're vilified as not being part of the Muslim community or being an astroturf Muslim, whatever Uncle Tom name or whatever other bullying and name calling they want to use. You'll still find the Facebook page, Zuri Jasser, the Uncle Tom clown or whatever that Facebook page is. It's still there. Facebook wouldn't take it down. Even though it's imitating and impersonating somebody else. But that's not the issue. Remember, I started saying that I don't like the term cancel culture. The reason I don't like it, it's far, far deeper than that. This is a rot 
This is a cancer in the intellectual honesty of what it is to be an American. We can debate, we can differ, but intellectual honesty means respecting those who you disagree with to give them the same time, the same space, and the same value. We talk about bigotry, we talk about preventing racism, but yet if somebody has an idea that's diverse, they are shut out in a tribal mechanism and suffocated. That's what happens to them at universities. You see now in the streets of Portland, there's some kind of riots and anarchy happening. The truth is being muddled. You see coverage of that on some networks, and they're not even covering 10% of the reality of what's happening there. No criticism, no critique, and no balance. This is the rot, the cancer that will eat away and destroy America from within. And the Islamists, post 9-11, were also part of that rot. Because they are seeking, in countries where they are majority, to create an Islamist hegemony. And they're using the left's collective thinking, group thinking, wrong thinking, tribalism, with their own tribalism to exert a way to defeat Western liberal democracy, secularism, and liberty. And that's what this program is about. Nothing epitomizes what's happening in the Islamist world more than this week. Turkish President Recep Erdogan redesignated the status of the famous Hagia Sophia church as a mosque. This is no small issue. When I sat on the U.S. Commission to Natural Religious Freedom from 2012 to 2016, we designated Turkey as a country of not particular concern, but on the watch list of countries of particular concern because of this issue primarily. Built in 547 A.D., the cathedral, as Haini Horaba describes that the IPT during the reign of the Byzantine Empire Justinian the Great the Hagia Sophia was a symbol of the Byzantine Empire before it fell into the hands of the Ottoman Caliphate in 1453 that's when Mehmet the Conqueror occupied the city and converted it to a mosque but the mosque was changed into a museum in 1935 in 1935 by the founder of the Turkish Republic Ataturk since then, it became a major, has remained a major tourist attraction. But reverting it from a museum to a mosque fits with Erdogan's intensive Islamization policies and his deep Islamist supremacism. Last year, he said Hagia Sophia will be commemorated as a mosque. It will no longer be memorialized as a museum. It's our people's expectation and that of the Muslim world. Islamists lauded him, lauded Erdogan as the leader of the Muslim world. Prayers were performed for more than 400 years, and Mehmet the Conqueror had bought its land and its surroundings. Egyptian Brotherhood leader al Sarir wrote Thursday, or last week, Will Erdogan revive the Conqueror's method, and we hear Allahu Akbar in the mosque again? Question mark. The Qataris 
Elthani, one of the Elthani family writers, detached the Hagia Sophia from his Christian roots completely, writing, Hagia Sophia ended its ties with the church, and since four centuries ago, it was only a mosque. The decision to do so is a matter of sovereignty for the Turkish people. It will be a joyful news that reinforces pride and identity. This is what the Qataris are saying. Secretary Pompeo appropriately urged Turkey to keep the Hagia Sophia as is. He said that it's an, it is a testimony to the religious expression and to artistic and technical genius reflected in its rich and complex 1,500-year history. The site status as a museum has a lot of people from all over the world to access and reflect upon the magnificent achievement. And Pompeo went on to be significantly critical of this move, and appropriately so. Mauritanian Brotherhood, Shinkiti, scoffed at the American position. Did the U.S. Secretary of State ever demand that the Muslims be permitted to pray at the Cordoba Mosque, which is now a Catholic church? Or does it remember religious tolerance? But not all Muslims support the Turkish plans. The Egyptian Global Fatwa Index, whatever that is, but it's an Egyptian Fatwa Index, probably supported by the government there, said the Turkish regime is exploiting the issue of converting the Hagia Sophia to a mosque to become an electoral weapon for Erdogan. Saudi Arabia described his plans as sowing religious strife between followers of the faith and around the world. The Russian and Greek Orthodox churches call Turkey's plans unacceptable. They said the potential conversion of Hagia Sophia into a mosque will turn millions of Christians around the world against Islam, said Greek Orthodox ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew. We hope that wisdom and reason ultimately prevail. And on. Again, thanks to Hani Horaba for putting all of this story together for the Investigative Project on Terrorism. And believe it or not, believe it or not, the New York Times had a piece this week. Turkey's Islamist dream finally becomes a reality. And before I get to that opinion... It is important to note that Erdogan is using this not only to to inflame interfaith politics and division, but to help himself electorally to 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 enrage his 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 base that he will be their victor to raise Islamist ideas, and not only in Turkey, but he also connected it to Al Aqsa Mosque that places that were no longer mosques, that became churches, synagogues, whatever they might be, will reign victorious in this. He connected it to his anti-Zionism, his anti-Semitism, and the supremacist, the supremacist efforts of the Palestinian Islamist Hamas and their entire global movement. Even in the New York Times, 
the writer says, as Turkey's prime minister between 3 and 14, Erdogan has dismantled all checks on power and shifted the country's political center of gravity in his favor. The idea was always that opening the Hagia Sophia for prayers would mark the maturation of Islamist power and cement its gains. This was written by Salim Kuru and Alice for the Economic Policy Research Foundation in Ankara and a writing fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. The first prayer is set to take place on July 24, the anniversary of the Treaty of Lausanne, signed between the Allied powers and Turkey, which drew the boundaries of modern Turkey. Kuru goes on to write, Mr. Erdogan will want the Western world especially to watch closely because the ceremony will represent what he considers the reclamation of Turkish sovereignty from its clutches. This op-ed seemed to be critical, but it wasn't strong enough. Strong enough would be that this is a crime against Christianity. Regardless of what you see in the history of what happened in the building of that church, you have a country of 99% Muslims with historical prominence of some churches there, therein. And that prominence, that prominence cannot be erased from history. It is no different than what may be happening in America as you see statues removed and and this is obviously not of religious significance but when you start talking about removing statues of Alexander Hamilton, of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson because they were slave owners and ignore everything else in their life yes, they had a mixed history but they were our founding fathers that brought us a constitution and bill of rights that we continue to perfect in how we act on it every year every decade, every century. It's not an apologetic for slavery. It is about Americanism and that we can only learn from history if we learn from it, if we allow it to exist and we note that its errors and its blessings and we learn from its blessings and we correct its errors as we did with slavery, as we did with bigotry, as we did with civil rights and we continue to become a more perfect nation. And you see the Islamists moving. And as we sleep, my last comment before I go, as we continue to sleep into this COVID anesthesia, into this COVID economic doldrums, the Islamists are advancing. When I was on the commission, on U.S. International Commission of Religious Freedom, the Turks would have never, they promised us, they lied to our face and said that that would always be a museum. It would never, never become a mosque. And here we are in 2020 in the midst of a global pandemic and Erdogan and his government explicitly violate that and lied and now move forward with their Islamist supremacism and the erasing of Christian history. It is bigotry against Christians. It is a supremacist act against the Christian church. Make no mistake. And it is not much different than what they want to do with Al-Aqsa and with the state of Israel and Jerusalem. 
a lot to learn, ladies and gentlemen, a lot to talk about. Always enjoy being with you. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R. Also at Reform This Radio. And stay strong, stay healthy, and share this podcast if you enjoyed it. Share it with your friends. Find me online. Find our website at AIFDemocracy.org. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.